This episode of Below the Line was recorded at 3pm on the afternoon of Friday the 8th of April. You're listening to Below the Line, picking apart the polls, the party spin and the policies. Here's adept at running with the foxes and hunting with the hounds, lacking the moral compass and having no conscience. Susan Lee, one of my finest cabinet ministers, was under threat. I'm asked all the time, why wasn't the Prime Minister do more about getting good women in Parliament and stand up for the women in Parliament? Hello and welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 federal election podcast special brought to you by The Conversation and La Trobe University. I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Joining us regularly throughout this election campaign are Annika Gower from the University of Sydney, Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney, Andrea Carson, the creator of this series from La Trobe University. And today we will have a special guest joining us, Dr. Jill Shepherd, an expert on gender and politics from the ANU. Well, as we make this podcast, we're awaiting a high court deliberation on a special leave application lodged over the internal squabble in the New South Wales branch of the Liberal Party over pre-selections. And indeed, by the time you listen to this podcast, the election may even have been called, regardless of the outcome of that litigation. So we want to deal today, though, with gender and its impact on this election campaign, but we have to do the heavy lifting first on this High Court case. Annika, give us a brief explanation, a brief summary of why this is even happening, please. Yeah, thanks very much, John. Well, we spoke about it in the last podcast, but the pre-selection dispute in the New South Wales Liberal Party drags on Um, and it wasn't sorted. So uh, Scott Morrison and the Federal Party intervened. They formed a committee with the New South Wales Premier and the former party president, Christine McDivin, to select the candidates in those seats in New South Wales uh, and endorse sitting members. And so all of this has come to a point where a member in the New South Wales party, Matthew Kamenzuli, who has actually since been expelled, which is an interesting development, said, no, you can't do this, you can't have a federal intervention. The federal party said, yes, that's exactly what we can do. And so that is one of the issues that the court needs to decide. So does the federal party have the power to be able to take control um, and manage a state division under its rules? And that's pretty uncontentious. I think it's pretty clear that the party has the ability to do that, but it is a matter of looking at the rules um, and making a judgment on how they should be correctly interpreted. So that's the first thing that the, uh, the High Court's got to look at. Now, the second thing, which is the sort of bigger issue and the more interesting issue, is whether a court can even intervene in this sort of dispute in the first place. And there's a really fascinating twist here. The Victorian Supreme Court has just dealt with this issue over the internal squabbles in the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. The Victorian Court of Appeal in the Supreme Court held that they can hear a challenge over the internal rules of the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. They then did hear that challenge and dismissed it as having no merit. The New South Wales Court of Appeal, though, on the other hand, has ruled that there is no work for a court to do in intervening. So the High Court has to decide whether to back the New South Wales approach of not intervening with the Victorian approach, which was, we'll intervene, but there's nothing here for us to overturn. So 
yet again, it was a bit like George Pell and some of these other big squabbles. The Victorian courts and the New South Wales courts have gone down a different path and now the High Court's going to have to decide. Yeah, look, it's a bit of a state of origin, isn't it, in that way? But it's also <laughs> it's, it's also the, the issue of whether or not pre-selections are essentially private or public processes. And for most of the 20th century, the law has sort of said that actually they're private. Political parties are no different to uh, voluntary associations such as sporting clubs and community organisations, where if there's a spat between the members, they have to sort it out themselves. But from about the 1990s onwards, the courts started taking a slightly different view on this, and they basically said, no, political parties actually perform more of a public function, particularly around pre-selections, and they're mentioned in the Electoral Act, uh, so therefore it's justifiable for a court to intervene. So the bigger issue that's at play here, apart from deciding you know, whether Victoria or New South Wales reigns supreme, is whether or not pre-selections are public activities or private ones. And it's going to be fascinating because from a political analysis point of view, it's quite possible, even though the High Court make a rapid decision, the consequences of that decision, in other words, if they decide that the New South Wales branch should retain control on pre-selections, that could drag on even during the time when Scott Morrison has to have called the election because he's running out of time to trigger an election by anything other than the last possible day of the 21st of May, is he not? Yeah, that is conceivable. I mean, you know, best case scenario, they'll turn it around quickly within 24 hours. But if they decide to hear the appeal, uh, yeah, it could take a week or so for those reasons to be, or the judgment at least, to be be handed down. Um, look, I think, you know, it's unlikely that they will say, no, the intervention was invalid, because I think that's quite clear under the Constitution that the Federal Party can step in. But that broader question of public versus private is something that can't actually be resolved pretty easily or quickly. Uh, just very quickly, um, Simon, uh, what damage is this therefore doing to the prospects of Liberal candidates in New South Wales to have these issues and headlines dominating the, the coverage when they'd rather be talking about just about anything else? Yeah, I think that's an open question, to be honest. I know from a hard-headed political management perspective, you, you want all this stuff sorted out. Uh, I think the real issue, though, is how many swing voters are actually paying attention to this and actually would even be able to be aware of the fact that, you know, that the pre-selection isn't concluded or is still being disputed in, in some seats. I think there's a small set of us, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of them who, who find this stuff really important and really fascinating. Um, it is hampering some local candidacy, so there's, there's no doubt about that. And I'm thinking in particular of some of the seats where the so-called teal candidacies are, are playing real hard grassroots campaigns. Um, uh, Warringah finally got a, a liberal candidate um, announced, but it's just so hard uh, to mount an effective counter grassroots campaign to some of these more insurgent grassroots campaigns. Uh, when you haven't got a candidate yet. So there's a practical consequence on the ground, I think, in some of those seats on the margin. Um, but I think from a national perspective, 
I think if it's registering at all, it plays into perhaps this narrative that Liberal Party is at war with itself, and that's probably as much detail as as much uh, as as the ordinary punter has on this. And and then the question is, well, is that flipping any votes or adding any news to what people are already carrying around in their head about who to vote for this cycle? All right, and just before we get to gender issues, Andrea Carson, how do you think the media are going in covering such a both legally and politically complex issue on the cusp of a full campaign. It's drowning out all other political messaging that the parties would like to get through at the moment. I'm sure Labor would want to be talking about um, health care and aged care at this point, and the coalition's probably wanting the conversation to switch over towards the economy and maybe um, on foreign affairs. But instead we're getting, as Simon pointed to, this um, this narrative about the party being at war with itself, yep. which everyone likes a bit of a bust up, um, and that's probably as deep as the public's going into it, and just suffocating the the airwaves on those other important issues that the parties want to get to. All right, now I am am somewhat embarrassed, but this podcast, in order to try and get one out quickly, it has been scheduled at a time when I am deeply conflicted, and in fact, I'm due on stage at a, um, a book event flogging my book, Apollo and Thelma, A True Tall Tale, published by Hardy Grant in All Good Bookshops Now. But I am unable to stay on for the rest of this podcast. Now, because you want to talk about gender, it would be absolutely logical to invite Andrea Carson to host or Annika Gower to host or even our expert, Jill Shepard. But no, instead, those who have organised this particular podcast have decided to hand from one stale pale male to another to talk about gender. Simon Jackman, I'm sorry I can't stay on. I am due on stage any minute now. I do have to go, but I look forward to joining you all for the next edition when we have Below the Line, our podcast coming up throughout this election campaign. See you all later. Thank you, John. And where I come from, that's called a hospital pass, but we'll let that one slide through to the keeper as well, mixing my uh, sports metaphors there. I'm delighted to uh, be in the helm uh, for the balance of our time today, because it puts me in one of my favorite roles, and that is asking questions of fabulous scholars uh, in their area of expertise. Um, and when we settled on this theme for today's podcast, um, we knew we had to bring the fabulous Jill Shepard uh, into the conversation. Uh, but between the three, um, Annika, Andrea, and Jill, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, uh, you've got three of the perhaps leading experts, I'd suggest, in, in Australian uh, political science um, when it comes to gender in politics, both as a phenomenon in the mass electorate, but critically, as we've been alluding to, up at candidate pre-selection level and party organization and, and media perceptions of, of female candidates. So let's get into it. Look, I want to start off with the Lee Sales interview with the Prime Minister the, the other night where um, a little, I thought, was a rather audacious answer by Prime Minister Morrison um, to say the reason uh, he's been so adamant um, about, about getting pre-selection right and all this federal intervention and whatnot is to really back in female candidates. You don't have to be under a rock to know that you know, this government's perhaps had a little bit of a, an issue um, with respect to, to a whole bunch of gender-related issues over the course of its term. Jill, is there a gender gap in Australian politics? And if so, which way does it break? And is it perhaps any more pronounced under this government with this prime minister than at any other time? So this is a fascinating thing, right? And before Julia Gillard 
the coalition had the upper hand on women. Oh God, what a terrible thing to say. They they attracted more female votes than uh, than did the ALP. That feels like you know for COVID and for lots of other reasons, but that feels like absolute decades ago. If if an alien landed in Australia today and you said, hey, you know about fifteen years ago, this party led by Scott Morrison was the party of choice for more women than not, that would be a very, very hard thing to, to explain. How do we know that there's a gender gap? Because we don't, <laughs> right? It's secret ballot. We don't know the way that men or women vote. So how do we know um, that what you've been describing to us is, is, is true? And what's the magnitude of it? So we survey voters after every federal election and they tell us how they voted. So we know a few things. Uh, we know that the trend in women voting for the coalition was in decline, even leading up to the ascension of uh, of Julia Gillard, but that Julia Gillard's to the prime ministership really hastened that. Annika, what do the data tell us about this difference in the presence of women, not just in the party, but in in parliaments as representatives of their parties? Yeah, well, look, just to sum it up, in one quick sentence, it's that voters don't discriminate between men and women, political parties do. So if we think about, you know, the reasons why women aren't being elected to parliament in as large numbers as their male counterparts, the problem very squarely, and this is not just in Australia, but internationally lies with the political parties as, as the sort of conduits to nomination and election. And, I mean, part of the problem with political parties is cultural and part of it is structural as as well. So um, we know that the majority of party members, pretty much in every party except the Greens, would be men. And this does sort of vary by the ideological disposition of, of parties. Uh, the more progressive parties tend to have more women in them. The more conservative parties have more men. Scott Morrison, when he went on 7.30 and he said, you know, I'm, I'm doing this to, to really, you know, spruit the, the position of women in the party and we've pre-selected 50%, 50% men, 50% women. To me, I mean, that sounds a hell of a lot like affirmative action. So, so you know, this could be the silver lining for, for the Liberal Party, Scott Morrison's actions and his admission that intervention was required. Andrea? Jill mentioned that the prime ministership of Julia Gillard was, if not um, a landmark event, but an important moment um, in this uh, development of a small but pro-Labor gender gap. How was she treated by the media and how did that her prime ministership play into that narrative? Well, I think most of us know the answer to that. She was treated appallingly. Uh, you just have to think of those ditch the witch slogans and put her out in a chaff bag out to sea and her father would be ashamed of her and those sorts of comments that were passed in the mainstream media and by some people considered acceptable by the very fact that they thought it was okay to mention or to state those things out in public. Julie Gillard did finally call it out with what's now become quite renowned as the misogyny speech and the media treated her differently, commenting on her jackets and her the colours that she wore and and body shape and things that men don't get um, exposed to in media coverage. From a campaign strategy point of view, how do the parties 
take advantage or try to cover up or, or de-emphasize the fact that gender is a sore spot for them. We saw that with the response by Scott Morrison. He was trying to blunt two arrows at the same time by linking the mess of the pre-selections to gender. The first arrow he was trying to blunt was that he stands up for others, trying to negate this idea that he's a bully. And we've got a whole stack of women lining up saying he is a bully, from Julia Banks downwards to Connie for Aventi Wells and um, the most recent has been in the New South Wales MLC in the form of Catherine Cusack. So there, there's plenty of evidence for that. And the second arrow is that um, he cares about gender equality and talking about how he's got a cabinet that has more women um, in it than in the history of Australian politics, which may be true. However, it doesn't override the fact that under the Howard government in the second term, there were more Liberal women in the parliament than there is now. Let's just stop and think about that. That was 20 years ago. Australia has 31.1% of its lower house that are women. That places us as 50th in the world. In 1999, Australia was ranked 15th. So we're seeing a real regression here, and most of that, as Annika has pointed out, as has Jill, is because of party structures. The Labor Party introduced quotas in the party system in 1994, and it's had a rapid increase. Well, not rapid, over 20 years. It takes that much time to be able to get close to having gender parity within that party. It's doing the heavy lifting for the Australian Parliament at the moment. Annika, do parties put women into marginal? or less marginal, safer seats. Is there any pattern there in, in the data? That's an interesting point, Simon, because you sort of expect that they, they would do that. And um, I've found over the last few federal elections that that actually hasn't been the case. So they put, they put women into, you know, winnable seats at the same rate that they put men into winnable seats as well. So it's not the positioning that's the issue with the election. It's the sheer numbers of women who are pre-selected by parties, what would an election strategist do? Do and I would say you'd roll out Jenny. What would Jenny do? We've already seen that um, in the months leading up to the uh, to the campaign, particularly around the the allegations of sexual assault in Parliament House and how that was handled. So I think there is a, a real knee jerk reaction on the response of political parties that what women want is to see other women and women's responses to these events as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if Jenny starts featuring again in the campaign and, and same likewise for Anthony Albanese's partner as well. I think she'll be rolled out at, at a, an opportune moment too to make him as relatable to the uh, female audience as he can be. I was going to ask about Labor. Any reactions, Jill and uh, Andrea, to how the Labor Party, itself led by a man, might take advantage of what Jill described as this gender gap that's there perhaps in a structural way, but perhaps had a, has extra salience in this particular election cycle? I still think a lot of these gender issues still have an inside baseball element that, you know, if you went out onto the street, so, you know, I'm from Berwick, so I always think about, you know, what are people on uh, High Street in Berwick thinking about, and they're probably not thinking about how women MPs are getting treated. Right. That's just this, this is so far from their lived experience. Do you think they're thinking about how Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame have been treated and and the, you know, the history uh, over the last couple of years 
in Canberra around issues of gender? I think they did for a while. My sense is that uh, they, they did in the short term. And the closer we get to the election, the, the stronger our instincts become to think about financial security, national security, health and education. And all of those things predominate at every election. Think about what's happened in the last two years, not just in terms of, of you know gender and sexual harassment in Parliament House and sexual assault claims, all of these things. There's war in Ukraine. We had a pandemic and we're still talking about fuel excise. It's incredible, right? Like I obviously all those issues are, you know, linked in some way, but there is an incredible sameness to Australian elections that makes our job hard sometimes, finding variation, you know, what happened in 2019 that might not happen now. But to get back to your question, Simon, you know, what do, what do Labor do, you know, on the sort of women voter front, they set themselves on cruise control now, right? You know, and looking at the figures of, of gender breakdown and, you know, how men and women vote for the two major parties, you know, we might say that the Liberals have a, a women problem uh, in that they don't have an advantage among women voters generally now. But to flip that, the ALP has a serious male problem, right? Male voters aren't voting for the ALP. Maybe, you know, if, if we're trying to sort of centre women and, you know, you've got these three kick-ass women me included, on the <laughs> on the show today. If we send to women, we might ask, how does the ALP win back men? I might just um, challenge Jill a little here, if I can, for a second, in terms of the independents, which are largely women that are running across mainly the lower house as well. And I'm thinking about Allegra Spender and Zoe Daniel and others. And I wonder whether they might, one or two of those um, out of the Climate 200 group will get through because there has been this space created for wanting to hear from female voices and um, female politicians and they've stepped forward and filled that space. So here I do have some evidence and it is that net of every other factor, right, so if we hold party constant and the ethnicity constant and, and every other sort of characteristic constant voters love women candidates right women and and this is being replicated across the the western democratic world right when women run they do really really well so i'll take your point about allegra spender zoe daniel uh kathy mcgowan helen haynes uh zali stegel what do these women have in common they should have been liberal party candidates right how did the Libs let these women through their fingers, right? They, they should have been absolute walk-up starts for the Liberal Party. But the Liberal Party today doesn't make room for these women. And that's, I think, one of the distinctive features of this cycle. You've been listening to Below the Line. I'm Professor Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney. I've been talking to Melbourne University Vice-Chancellor's Fellow John Fain with Professor Anne Gower, Dr. Jill Shepard and Andrea Carson. This podcast is brought to you by The Conversation with La Trobe Universities. Its producers are Courtney Carthy at Neely Media and Ben Clark from The Conversation. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes.
and Mr Howard Colby to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.